this working? Yes, okay, great, sorry. What? Yeah, <laughs> good, Bill. Always get a bill coming out there. We're glad. So we're entering into the summer. Anybody else excited about that? I'm very excited about that. However, there's some things about summer that I'm not excited about, okay? I'm actually a little scared. I'm a little nervous about it. I'm going to be honest. A little confession here, okay? I'm going to show my cards, the reason I'm not that excited about summer is because at least a couple times a summer, at least a couple times a summer, I have to deal with this issue. Are you ready? The kids want me to swim with them. In the pond. That's right. Three words. In the pond. You see, in a pool, great, I can see the bottom. But in the pond, changes the game. Changes the game. So I find myself at least a couple times a summer standing on the edge of a dock or maybe on the kind of platform high above on top of the pontoon boat, at least in the center of the pond, with my kids in the water, splashing around, Yelling, come on, Dad, come on, you're a w- oops, you're a wuss, right? You're a wuss. I don't know. That's going to stay there. It's going to be a low one. You're a wuss. Jump in. And I, and I kind of stand there on the edge and, and kind of like this, and I'm like, I'm coming, I promise. I promise. I'm coming in. Just hold on. Not yet. I'm not ready yet. And so I stand there, and I have these emotions. I want to jump in. Because, you know, I I don't want to be a wuss, and I also want to be like the awesome dad, right? You want awesome dad award for the summer. And and if you don't go in the water with the kids, you're you're not really the awesome dad anymore. So I got this emotion, be the awesome dad, overcome my fears, and and yet I have at the very same time uh, a desire to not go in. I don't want to do it. Because I'm a human I'm not a frog. I'm not a fish. I'm a human being. So I don't want to go in the pond. So I stand there and kind of hem and haw, and I think about it. You know, it's a hot day, and maybe I talk myself into it. Maybe it would be refreshing physically, you know, like kind of, kind of wash off a little bit from the day, the sand and the sweat, because you know, you know you're at camp, and you're not getting any AC tonight. So, again, because I'm human, I crave those things, and I'm normal, at least in my own mind. So I stand there, minute upon minute, hearing people beg me, tease me to jump in. I want to, but at the same time, I'm not interested at all. No, thank you. Can we just be at the Hyatt? Everything will be better if we're just at the Hyatt. Anybody understand those emotions? Can we just have a TV, air conditioning, iced tea? You feeling me? Some of you are like, man, I really like camping. Well, great. I'm, I'm really happy for you. But I have these emotions. I want to and I don't. And I've got to be honest, as I was looking at our passage and really thinking about where we're headed, really over the summer, in Exodus chapter 20, the, the Sinai covenant, the law, where God is speaking to his people, revealing who he is, 
and laying out very specific expectations about how they're to live in his covenant. And i got to be honest. As a preacher, as a sinner, and as a follower of Jesus, I approach this section of Scripture with a, I'm really excited, I want to do this, but at the very same time, I, I really don't want to do this. I'm not so sure that I'm interested in the challenge of these scriptures. And so I have these voices in my head. One is saying do it, one is saying don't. And I wonder if you, as you approach law, as you approach the old covenant, as you approach the Ten Commandments, and all these stipulations and expectations, that if you're not feeling the very same thing, I really want to know, I want to experience, I want to engage, but at the same time, I, I fear being overwhelmed. In some ways, that's appropriate. And yet we hear the Spirit of God saying, come, jump in. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to reveal Father, Son, Spirit to you in a way that maybe you have not understood us before. I'm going to reveal my will and my ways. So jump in and be refreshed spiritually. You may say, how can the law of God refresh us spiritually? Well, that's why we're walking through these passages together. So let's overcome our fears, if you will, and let's jump in. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. We're going to be in this section of Scripture for quite some time, uh, mostly through the summer. Each week we're going to read the whole passage but each week we're going to focus in on a particular couple of verses. Okay, are we ready for this? Are we still hesitating? Let's do it. Exodus chapter 21 through 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them or to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord rested, I'm sorry, blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, Amen. I wonder if you ask the average CNYer, assume you all know what I mean by that, Central New Yorker. I wonder if you went around and you asked them this question. And I wonder if you may even be thinking about what potential answers you would get given the religious landscape that we live in. If you were to ask this question, on what basis... Can you have a relationship with God? What kind of answers would you get? On what basis? What foundation must be laid for you to have relationship with God? Whatever God that may be that you worship. On what basis? What's the foundation? What kind of answers might you receive? Good works, absolutely. And since we're answering, let's allow others to answer as well. Thanks, Doug. Just kidding. It's good. Anybody else? That one wasn't. The first one was. Audience participation is high today. This is good. What kind of answers would you get? Let's run with that one for a moment. Good works. I think you would often hear a religious answer. That is the basis of a relationship with God. The foundation of a relationship with God is who I am. And what I can conjure up in works or behaviors in relationship to him. That is, God will enter into a relationship with me. He will um, save me. He will accept me on the basis of who I am and what I do. Or, flip side, God will not be interested in a relationship with me if I am not, or if I am this kind of person, or if I do these kind of things. Do you think that would be an accurate statement about how most people would view the foundation of having a relationship with God? I think so. Even those who would say that that's not true, that it's based on something else, often live according to that, don't they? That their lives is a carrot chasing. 
that is this thing out there that, that if I, whatever that is out there, acceptance or control or significance, they're chasing after it and trying harder, failing along the way and then trying harder again in the hopes that someday they'll achieve and obtain something that gives them satisfaction and security. That's how we live, isn't it? It's how we're hardwired. There's foundational confusion about our relationship with God out there. I love how the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words of God, and even stopping there for a moment, saying the Ten Words or Sayings of God tells you that this is the Word of God that we're looking at. This is God's Word. He is speaking to his people. And when it's God's word, guess what? It has his person, his being as its source. It is perfect. It is wonderful. It is holy. And by nature, it has authority over every aspect of our lives. God is speaking. And this is what he says, he's about to lay out a bunch of expectations, a bunch of laws, some do's and don'ts. But all of those expectations are, are on the basis of, or, or, or the outflow, if you will, of something that is very foundational that we cannot miss. And it's not who we are, and it's not what we have done. Somebody say amen to that reality. It's not based on who we are or what we can conjure up. It's based on something quite different, actually. Someone this week, and I won't say who, had made the comment that I think I'm still having problems in life because I'm not doing a good enough job in my relationship with God. And it was a wonderful opportunity to look at that person and say, that's not our gospel. That's not what we believe. I, I understand where you're coming from. I, I sometimes get confused as well. I sometimes forget what the gospel is, the beauty. I, I sometimes miss it. But the truth is, the beauty of the gospel is that we are in relationship with God on the basis of who he is and what he has done, not us. God is not waiting for us to get it together and to do a better job before he accepts us. No, he's taking the initiative. He sees who we are. He sees what we've done. And, and in his plan and in his sovereign grace, he shows up and he says, this is who I am. This is what I've done to bring you into relationship with me. That's the gospel. That's why we're here today. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. I hope we're not here for any other reason. I hope we're not here because we think that, oh, I had a crappy week. I said some really crappy things to my wife. And, you know, I'm not really a generous guy. And I'm really selfish. And I stole from the IRS. So I better go to church to make up for it. I hope that's not why we're here today. I hope we're here today because we're, we're living in response to who God is and what God has done to save us. Foundational confusion. 
but it's who the Lord is. And it's what the Lord has done that is the foundation of our relationship with him. That's what he's starting his covenant reminding them of. Look at what he says. I am the Lord your God. The one who is eternally present. The one who always was, the one who always is, the one who always will be, Yahweh, the Lord, am your God. Very personal. And I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Talk about a simmering down of the last 19 chapters. But it's that simple. And I think if you were to look in the mirror and look at your life, you would see that it's that simple. This is who God is, and this is what he did. He showed up in your life, and he took you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that your relationship to him is simply on the basis of that. That's it. That's good news, isn't it? Isaiah 43, 1. But now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Before we move forward with expectation, let's not move forward with this idea that these people in any way, shape, or form, even under the terms of the old covenant, were in relationship with God on the basis of their performance. Everyone say, boo, like we're rooting for the Ravens. Boo. Right? You can boo in church, especially when we talk about sin, Satan, death, and the Ravens. I know, it's twisted theologically, but it's fun, right? We hate the Ravens. These people were not accepted based on their performance to laws. They were already in grace. I'm the Lord your God. I called you. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. That's the foundation, even for those under the old covenant. Do you see that? It's not plan A, then plan B. No, there's continuity between old and new covenants. We're going to see that. Grace, redemption, is already established to an undeserved people before they're called to obedience. You cannot miss that, or we're going to have a mess in the old covenant. We're going to have a mess. Better keep moving. We have to see that that this foundation is based on who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. And this, this relationship is covenantal by nature. It's by covenant. That's what we see happening here. Don't miss that. God relates to his people through covenant, agreement, contract. Waters it down some to call it a contract. But you get the idea that there are parties involved. I, Yahweh, and you, 
Israel. This is our agreement. I am creating it, and I will sustain it and stipulate it. These are the terms. I'm the sovereign, as they would understood. I'm in charge. I, Yahweh. You, Israel, are dependent upon me. You will be the ones that are, are, are dependent upon me and will listen and obey my voice. Remember, go back to 19, where he's appearing to this nation. He's on top of the mountain in fire and smoke and in the cloud. The people are freaking out in fear, appropriately so, and God is going to speak to the nation, revealing himself and his will and his ways. Through covenant. Through covenant. God is the giver. Israel is the recipient. We are the recipients of a covenant that God has created. That's how God relates to us. Do you see that? You can't miss that. You look back, you see in Eden, God related through covenant. Not going to dig into that. You look at uh, Noah. God relates to Noah through what? Covenant. What about Abraham? God relates to Abraham through what? Covenant. God came to Egypt to keep his promise and make due on his what? Covenant with Abraham. Now we see the Sinai covenant through Moses. Once uh, in the future, we will see that reinforced and reestablished time after time. The Davidic covenant. God will send a ruler through you who will reign forever. Ezra and Nehemiah, the reading of the book of the law, the reestablishment of what? The covenant. This is how God relates to his people. Can't miss that. And we also know that because the people were simply incapable, and time after time and consistently, what did they do with that covenant? They rejected it. They walked away from it. They disobeyed it. They were unfaithful to it. And the law, what? Was a tutor. A, a, a revealer that was opening their eyes to see a new covenant that was fast approaching. That was promised in Jeremiah 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the one we're in. There's going to be a new covenant. Not like this covenant. Don't misappropriate that statement as if it's plan B. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And he goes on to say that this covenant will be different because guess what? He's going to put his law on their hearts, right? You're not going to need to teach this person and that person, know the Lord, obey the Lord, right? That it was going to be in their hearts, that what the law was incapable of doing. Changing the human heart. It would only expose the sin of humans. So this new covenant would be one where God would put his spirit in people and write his law on their hearts. And so the heart would be reoriented toward joyful obedience to God's laws. That's the new covenant. So who the Lord is, what the Lord has done, is the foundation of a covenantal relationship with God that we know and celebrate that has its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. That's an amen moment. It's fulfilled. 
right? That new covenant became a reality 2,000 years ago. It was inaugurated at the person and work of Jesus. It came and secured for those who believed in his name. You say, well, how do you know that? Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. If there's any abolitionists out there in regards to the law, stop. Look at what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I've come to what? Fulfill them. Complete them. Fulfill them, he says. We know that Christ's blood on the cross is the blood of the new covenant, right? Luke 22, likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out is the, I'm sorry, poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That Christ has fulfilled the requirement of the law when it comes to the need for a sacrifice, a substitute. The blood was necessary to take away sin, but as Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But Christ's blood is the blood of the new covenant that is effective in taking away sin. We see in Hebrews 9 that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Moses of the old, which we're looking at together, but we have to look at the, the, the old covenant through the lens of fulfillment. We have to. We're further down the line in the story of its fulfillment. Christ fulfilled that role, that, media, that mediator role. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The, the, the transgressions committed under the first covenant have been dealt with finally and forever through the perfect mediation of Jesus on our behalf. That's the gospel. It's been fulfilled. Although our performance falls short in relationship to God, Jesus' performance does not. Amen? He's perfect. And so Christ's fulfillment of the old covenant means our freedom. If you trust and rely upon Jesus, you are indeed free from the curse of the law. Hear that. Galatians 3:13. What Christ has indeed redeemed us from what? The curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's good news. We're redeemed from the curse of the law and its consequences thanks to Jesus. We have to look at the old covenant through the lens of fulfillment lest we mess up and get all distorted. We have to see that Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law. You say, well, that's kind of silly. You're dividing things up that maybe the Bible doesn't divide them up as, like ceremonial, civil, moral. Well, touche. But I think we can take a look at the sacrificial system and see that that's been fulfilled. It's no longer required, according to Hebrews 10. 
I think we can take a look at the civil aspects, the governmental, the, the national implications, and say, praise God that every man, woman, and child, regardless of nation, ethnicity, language, culture, every man, woman, and child that calls on the name of Jesus shall be saved. So we no longer live as the people of God in the form of a nation. So those civil laws are indeed uh, removed thanks to Jesus. But there is still a moral relevance to the law that we must embrace. We must see it. And if we do not embrace the law in its function, which we're going to talk about briefly in just a moment, if we do not see that, we will find ourselves in many ways, however you want to look at it, going down a mountain or up a mountain, since we're at Sinai, we'll use that, the mountain image. Imagine climbing up a steep mountain without ropes and straps and carabiners and all that that keep things tight and safe and in order. I think as we ascend up this hill through and journey uh, in the Sinai Covenant, we will find ourselves uh, in big trouble and unsafe. And if we don't uh, look at this through the lens of fulfillment and at the same time a very functional use of the law, even for the believer, we will find ourselves falling into the ravines of either one of two things. Legalism or lawlessness. Are you tracking with me? Am I losing you? You see, when the Christian looks back at the law, some of them run into moralism or legalism. And they fall into that ravine. What they do is they embrace Jesus. And then they run back to the law. To provide security for their standing before God. And they point the finger at everybody else who's not what? Performing up to snuff. Have you ever met anybody like that? They seem to embrace a foundation in Christ, but then in some ways, they seem to dig it up and run back to the law and limit spirituality to a list of do's and don'ts. Many of us approach the law in that manner. I think Al Mohler says this. He says, that when one reads the law of God, it's easy to fall into the trap of moralism, which is the belief that we can achieve righteousness by means of proper behavior. Be careful as we journey up the mountain that we do not lose our foundation in Christ. By falling into the trap of moralism. Even Paul says in Galatians to people who were doing just that. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, do not be again subject to a yoke of slavery. Anybody know that verse? 
He's telling the Galatians, don't run back to the law. Don't run back to the law to be the basis of your relationship with God, your right standing with Him. Quite honestly, I think this is prevalent in the evangelical church, but I also think that one other issue is even more prevalent today. The Christian looks at the law through the lens of fulfillment and concludes, I'm good. I can do whatever. I can live however I want, do whatever I want, because Jesus has forgiven me. I'm free. Right? And, and you hear Paul saying in Romans 6, shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? And how does Paul respond? By no means. Are you crazy? You've missed grace if you run into lawlessness. You've missed the whole point. Matter of fact, remember that the new covenant has reoriented the heart toward what? Joyful obedience to the law. <laughs> so we find ourselves not living in lawlessness, but as Galatians 5.13 says, right? Not turning freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's still law in new covenant. Write that down. There's still law. It's still relevant. There's still functionality to the law when it comes to the Christian. It's not It's time to abolish the law. Christ did not do that. He came to fulfill the law. We are not justified by the works of the law. But in our sanctification, indeed, we cooperate with God. What? Through obedience to his will and his ways. So lawlessness and legalism just don't fit for the new covenant. They just don't fit. We walk in the steps of fulfillment. We're going to see that the law has great function for us, even as those who rest in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Calvin, our favorite theologian, the one that brings so much controversy in the church, John Calvin talked about three uses of the moral law. Three uses. And I think they're going to have some potential personal application for each one of us here. He says, the law is a mirror. It's the, it's the use of the law that as we stare at it, we see the holiness of God. Because remember, the law reveals God, right? It tells us who he is. It outlines what he expects. It's a representation of him. And so when we stare at the law of God, we what? We see who he is, and we see who we aren't. <laughs> By contrast. And we're brought to our sin. And in doing so, the law, all the more, is a tutor that is leading us to Jesus. You see that? He's holy. I'm sinful. It's a mirror who shows me who I am. And when I see who I am, I want to run to Jesus. That's what the law does, he says. The second 
use of the law is not reflection. It is restraint. You see, the law provides for us spiritual seatbelt in this life with our, with our battle with the flesh. Countless appointments with people tell me that Christians struggle with the flesh that lures them far away from the ways and will of God, that gives them false promise of joy and satisfaction. And what the law does is it restrains us. It keeps us near to the heart of God. It does not redeem us. Please hear that. The law does not redeem us from our sin, but it does restrain us from living in the flesh, doesn't it? It's a spiritual seatbelt. So the law functions as a mirror. It functions as a seatbelt that, again, keeps us close to Christ. And we must see that the law is indeed one that reveals as I've already said. You want to get to know God? Spend time reading. His will, His ways, His word, His laws. Psalm 119 talks about the sweetness of the law, the word. It's honey. When we engage God's will in ways as revealed in Scripture, even in the Old Covenant, <laughs> we get to know who God is. We draw nigh to Him. He reveals Himself to you as His child. So the law is not useless for the Christian. In fact, it's quite useful to reflect who we are, to restrain us from sin, and to reveal the very nature of the God we worship. Don't miss this section by writing it off as irrelevant as a new covenant Christian. And I'm sure there are ways in which you need to grow in these aspects. I'm sure each and every one of us has sin that we wrestle with, has ignorance, and could grow in our knowledge of God, who may have a sense of pride about who they are and their righteousness, who may have minimized the character of God and maximized their own character, and could use some time to just sit at the base of Sinai and hear the ways and will of God. Could any of you be in that place today? Well, that's where we find ourselves. On the edge of the dock. Right? We find ourselves on the platform of the pontoon boat. We're a little nervous to Go cannonball. A little nervous to jump in. You know what? In some ways, that's a good sign. 
Do you know the later part of this chapter? The text tells us that when the people heard these words, they said, Moses, tell God to not talk to us anymore. They were scared. They had heard the voice of God. They wanted Moses to speak on his behalf. There's a, there's a righteous hesitancy. And yet we must move beyond that to recognize that even as we rightly fear the Lord and approach his word with reverence, we can dive in. For there's healing here. There's redemption here. There's reflection here. There's food here for us. There's refreshment for our souls in the law of God. Who the Lord is and what the Lord has done is foundational to our covenantal relationship with Him. All God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, for this text. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be oriented to obedience right from the beginning, through the series, and onward to the day that you return and we see you face to face, we hear your voice audibly. We fall on our knees before you and you put your hand on our shoulder and say, do not fear. We pray that as we await with hope that day, that you would continue to use your word in our lives to remind us of the foundation of knowing and enjoying you. That's who you are and what you've done in Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here today that does not know you on those terms, that is trying so hard to, to perform and to chase the carrot and to always feel like they're falling short. I pray that they would turn to you today and rest in your work for them. And I pray that all of us who have claimed to follow Jesus and continue to rest and rely upon his work would turn to your word as a mirror as a seatbelt, as a light bulb that opens our eyes to see all that you are. God, I pray our heart is simply oriented to obedience. Rid us of sin. Change our desires. Oh God, our desires are so twisted. We hear the lies and false promises of the enemy and we run to them. Oh God, save us from that. Redeem us from our sin. Change us. We need you, God. This is your person and your work alone that is the foundation. May we turn from ourselves and turn to you in every aspect of our lives. Use these times, Lord, to shape your people. Jesus' name.